You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Hey guys, this is our first episode. Woo-hoo! Really yeah. doing it. <laughs> I'm Jamie Dumont. I am Leslie Kritzer. I'm Rob Riso. And I'm Jennifer Samard. And this is the fabulous Invalid. <laughs> We're going to discuss theater with just about every type of theater professional you can think of, from actors to directors to designers, people in the pit, backstage, you name it. Some weeks there'll be all four of us and a guest. Some weeks there'll be two of us. Some weeks there may not be anybody. (laughs) Um, The point is we're going to sit here, eat some food, try to get our guests to drink, and talk about who they are and why they do what they do. And don't forget, Jamie. This food is amazing, and, you, and Jamie makes the food every time we do this. <laughs> Thank you. Might Delicious. be my new favorite chef in yeah. New York. Right. <laughs> Today's specialty is on these onion tarts. Oh, and the Forget tomatoes. It. Forget it. Oh, and there's cheese. And there the will cheese. always be cheese. And what is Thank this? This God. is this is arugula and edamame unicorn salad. You guys should be jealous. We're listening. I like to throw a lot of shit in my grains. Um, in all seriousness, though, we want to take a look at theater both seriously and not take ourselves too seriously. So, does that sound good? Sounds great. Sign me up. I'm in. I'm in. <laughs> So, getting back to our show, um, let's see. There's got to be something fabulous worth talking about this week. Um, I know something that's on my mind. I had sort of mixed feelings when I heard that they were changing the name of the gypsy robe to the legacy robe. Um, I feel like I might be on an island in this. Um, I don't think you are. I don't understand it. Okay. I don't understand why it's a big deal. Like, why did we change it? Maybe one of you should talk about what the gypsy robe is first, right? So folks have the... Could the actors the please address yeah, the gypsy the robe in the room? I'm sorry, the, the legacy robe. Oh, well, from what I understand, I'm not sure of the dates, but that it's... 1950. Tri- 1950, thank you, Rob <laughs> Rousseau. Oh you are our resident encyclopedia. Oh. Um, but yeah, they, every show, you t- uh, the ensemble member who has done the most contracts, the Broadway contracts as, uh, as an ensemble member... Um, in total. On opening night. In total, yeah. On opening, opening night. Opening night, not replacements. Um, uh, it, it's, it's beautiful, honestly. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, my gosh. It's just a, a, it really shows your body of work, your lifetime of work. And they get presented with this robe that comes from the previous winner. The previous winner is there and presents you with it. And then you have to run in a circle. I think it's three times and you tap everyone's hand. Yes. And then that individual has to go to the dressing rooms of every of every person to, quote, unquote, bless the show. Mm-hmm. And once you do that, the show is blessed. I hope I'm saying it all correctly. And, and the robe itself is decorated. It's decorated with, with show, yes. Right? And, and, the, and the winner uh, determines what that will be. And usually, the the wardrobe crew who is always amazing on every show let's be honest they're yeah. they're they're, they're, they're the courses. secret weapon yeah. you know uh they will help um so whatever item these are is on the robe and uh everyone in the show will usually autograph it and it and, it, and so on and so it goes on and on i just think it's ridiculous i'm gonna <laughs> I, go right in it wait, so i have a question are we no longer calling dancers gypsies? Is the whole like is the whole term? Well, sheeshed? I think there's a there's a difference though, right? I mean, what what makes this scenario different, and I think why people took umbrage with it in this era where we're being more thoughtful about the words that we use and what they mean, um, is that you know, gypsy as applied to 
the Romani people, right? Who yes. are the the um, of course you knew that term. Yeah, <laughs> the, I, the I, itinerant, you know, mm -hmm. uh, uh, people who came from India and ended up in Europe and ended up being persecuted and you know were on Hitler's list and to this day still face persecution. Um, they have been called gypsies. They don't call themselves gypsies. It's what's called an exonym. Um, a name that that others use to describe a group, right? And so, the word gypsy itself is not offensive, right? But it carries with it this connotation as applied to a persecuted people, right? So, but if the negative connotation is the fact that people apply the term gypsy negatively, however, if a dancer or a group of dancers refers to themselves as gypsies in a positive way, how is it a bad word? Why are right. we changing it? I'm a little well, confused. Well, I mean, to, to their credit, right, the issue was raised, and Actors' Equity threw it to a vote, right? So I don't, I don't know if you guys voted as part of that. No, it's no. a committee. It's a committee, okay. So stupid. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, and I don't care. Like, I really think it's dumb. I mean, we have so few things to celebrate now, and I feel like everything getting so PC, we're gonna be vanilla to death, and I just think comedy is suffering because of it. So many things are suffering because of it. We have to like, yes, I get it, I get it. Look, the Cleveland Indians are changing their um, right. uh, mascot, mascot yeah. they're taking the Indian face off of it, right. which makes sense to me. that's out and out racist. It makes sense to me. Right. But it's not like we're calling this the N-robe, you know what I mean? That would, but yes, technically right. that would be uh, very, but it, that is a more prevalent, mm -hmm. I think, derogatory name. Sure. But yeah. I, I just, I don't agree with it. I think Gypsy, didn't Cheetah Rivera said she's a Gypsy? She's like, oh, yeah, I'm a Gypsy. I mean, she's the ultimate yeah, Gypsy. She, she's I think the one, she's I think the she Gypsy even that said, all Gypsies aspire to. Yeah, I mean, listen, we all, listen, we're in a union. I, I support my union. I love my union. I take issues with my union, but I am a proud equity member. Mm -hmm. I just think this was not the right call. And I think, you know what? You know what I have to say? Honestly, they made such a big deal about this. We need to work on other things like our lab contracts and our workshops and right. shit like us not having dental insurance. Like, let's work on those things and right. let's leave the gypsy robe alone. Well, like, this is probably just an easier fix, right? I just got really mad, but it's, you know what? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Like, I, I'm, you know, yeah. I, I just, it's like, it's a celebration and we're not saying gypsy people are bad. Though I am fancy free and love to wander, I've got a gypsy in my soul. See those dancers? They're chorus dancers. In show business, we call them gypsies because they move around so much. From town to town, from show to show, wherever the work is, the gypsy is. No, it's a tradition. It just, it just feels like a very long-standing tradition that obviously will continue, but it seems, like they, it seems like they picked a fight that wasn't there, but I, I could be wrong. Well, to play devil's advocate, it's just a name, right? The, the tradition will continue. It mm -hmm. picked up with Head Over Heels this summer, the first show to have the legacy robe as opposed to the gypsy robe. I believe it was J. Elaine Marcos. And there you go. And the world didn't fall apart. And, yeah. you know, we'll, guess, just, we'll get used to it. Yeah. Right? I have friends on both sides of this argument. And if there's one thing I usually try to do, especially in politics, is I don't like both siderism, mm. <laughs> but I do see both points of view. The other point of view, just to point it out, um, was that if it's not 
it's not up to me as this Caucasian woman from New right. Hampshire to say whether it's offensive or not because it doesn't affect me, I guess. But I, I think I tend to agree more with the two of you um, about my personal opinion about it. Um, that said, I think the whole thing, to Leslie's point, um, is such that I, I wish both sides would just keep it in perspective when they're fighting about it because I see, I don't like how angry it gets on social media sites because really what it comes down to for me is three things. Water in Flint, Michigan, infrastructure in Puerto Rico, and you know, parents and children being separated at the border. That's what I want to focus on. Honestly, I could, for me, I don't care if it's called the bathrobe (laughs) right now in my life, you know? Well said. Leslie, you see what's happening here, right? So the voices of reason are on the opposite side (laughs) of the table, and then there's us. All right, well, with that, I think it's probably a smart time to uh, bring on our first ever guest. What? Yeah, yeah, I know. (laughs) Our very first guest so exciting. It's our first one, guys. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Our very first guest is a star of stage and screen. He has the rare distinction of winning both a Tony and an Oscar for the same role as the MC in Cabaret. An acclaimed photographer, author, and director. And the best-dressed man I know. We are delighted today to welcome Joel Gray. (laughs) Thank you, Joel, for coming on this lovely evening to be with us. Um, So I thought we'd start off by just asking a few silly questions before we kind of dig into the meat of things. Um, I hope they're really silly. (laughs) Well, you've set yourself up. No, I I love silliness. Well, what drives you crazy? Things that aren't silly. There you go. You know, people that are too serious about everything, Mm -hmm. you know, who don't have a little twinkle somewhere. I like a little twinkle. (laughs) What's a guilty pleasure of yours? Ah. Some people eat ice cream. Some people like trashy novels. <laughs> I think ice cream is high on the list. <laughs> Do you have a flavor? Uh, vanilla. Vanilla. Mm. Or chocolate. <laughs> Depending on. Or vanilla. Yeah. <laughs> I don't feel guilty about any of my pleasures. <laughs> I like that. Um, and then, where, where, on a more serious note, where do you draw inspiration from right now, this moment? Well, the the recent, my recent job and uh, assignment was to tell the story of Fiddler on the Roof in Yiddish, a language I don't speak but that I've heard all my life. Uh, My dad spoke it professionally. My mother wouldn't allow it in the house. Um, My grandparents spoke it. My grandfather was was a tailor, Max the tailor. I used to go and visit him in his tailor shop in Cleveland, Ohio. And he would listen every Saturday to the Metropolitan Opera on the radio. That was his guilty pleasure. (laughs) And um, 
he thought, my grandfather, that everyone that was any good was Jewish. You know, Caruso was a Jew. <laughs> he actually said that to me. So there was always a little humor somewhere in my house. And um, I, I just, you know, grew up with a lot of emotional input and kind of emotional excitement and uh, I've I'm happy to say that I've survived that you did yes you did that you certainly have you know in preparation for this I reread your memoir this week uh, Master of Ceremonies uh, which is a wonderful honest open book about your life and a lot of the 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 book is very um full of stories about your childhood and stories about your parents. And um, you, you, you write a lot about your mother, and I was very struck on this second reading of the book. Because um, you have a mother. I, well, <laughs> I do have, have a mother. mother. I've I, met your mother. I, yes, and, and, and I, I did notice a few similarities between our two mothers, but I was really fascinated with, with the loving portrait that you that you paint of your mother. She's a strong woman. She's a bit of a mama rose. She was very fashionable. She was a great cook. And there's a lot of love there, but there were a lot of challenges. There, was, well, there were difficulties with the two of you. She was very childlike and not mothering. She didn't know about really being careful with her children because she was not cared for herself. And that growing up, you felt that lack of love or that, that... No, my mother wasn't motherly. Right. She loved me. She really loved me. Uh, but she didn't know anything about caring and uh, treating new, new babies in a certain way that they need. Is that why you found Haven in acting at such a young age? Was it like another family? Was it, was it like, the, were you searching for a family through a community in the theater? I, I didn't know I was, if I was. But I went to the theater one day to see a children's performance. Uh, I don't even know what it was, but it was at a great place. Uh, a very serious theater called the Cleveland Playhouse. Anyway, I went to see this thing with children doing a show and I remember was the first thing I knew I said I want to do that I whispered to my mother and she signed me up and I was a part of this children's group that met every Saturday called the curtain pullers <laughs> <laughs> and that was my savior what was it like performing with your father? Because you started performing with your father not soon after kind of the time we're talking about, right? Like you, you, you started well, performing. Well, after leaving the Playhouse and Cleveland at 13. Oh, you moved to Los Angeles. Yeah, we moved to Los Angeles and there was nothing for me to do. <laughs> there was no Playhouse. Nobody wanted to hire me to do anything. I mean, I was 13, and I would just go and wait outside the studios 
for the movie stars to come out, and, mm -hmm. and I had a, such a great autograph book. And I don't know where it is. Oh, no. oh my oh. God. <laughs> What was your favorite, what was your, your prized autograph that you got at that time? Lana Turner. Oh, oh. God. Well, this, this was the golden age of Hollywood, wow. right? I mean, you must have seen yeah. them all if you were waiting yeah. on, you know, and on the waiting. And I'm 13. Right. Yee. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> she was something else. She, she and was, Rita Hayworth. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good one. Um, <laughs> it's a good get. Yeah. But so you get, you get Lana's autograph and a couple <laughs> of others. And then at what point do you actually start performing with your dad? When I was about 15 or 16, and I was just, just so frustrated that there was no place to act. And I didn't sing or dance. I had no idea what it was. <laughs> and um, I said to my father, how could I be in your show? I mean, it's all mostly in Yiddish, and it's, it was very, very smart with a lot of very talented uh, Hollywood uh, singers and dancers, and it was it was really uh, the hot thing in L.A. You load sixteen tons of hard salami. Come before beef and hot pastrami. I hack around everything gets to essence. I hold my nishumi through the delicatessen. Played at a theater called the Wilshire Ebel. Oh, sure. Which was totally anti-Semitic <laughs> for so many years. And they gave my father, not, I mean, they didn't give it, but they, uh, they let him use the theater for a, a sum um, every weekend for a number of years and, it was and a, sold out. Yeah, I was going to say, it was mm. a big hit. Yeah. It was a big hit. And is that, is that the moment doing, or the moment that you discovered that you, you had a song and dance man inside of you, was it on that stage at the Wilshire? I think you're right. Rebel? Yes, I think it was absolutely then. Uh, and my father's sister, who was my godmother, her name was uh, Aunt Jean, and everything I did was perfect <laughs> to her. Whereas everything I did for my mother was iffy. Right. So Aunt Jean was perfect. She would go to the theater and see me in a show. This is many, many years later when I, I had some success. And she would always pull me towards her backstage and say, I didn't applaud for anybody else. <laughs> yes, Aunt Jean. Oh, that's <laughs> a great. good aunt. <laughs> well, your mother came around because you do mention in the book that your mother would introduce herself as Mrs. Mickey Katz, but then as your success grew, she would say that she was Joel Gray's mother. That's right. So. She knew what to do. She knew what to do. <laughs> well, and it, it sounds like she was proud of you. She was a, no, she was uh, an outstanding person a painter and a, a great homemaker, superb cook. Um, I think she always wanted to be in the movies. Yeah. And one I of really those people do. who was always sort of ahead but of the curve. But everybody did then when she was growing up. And the movies were just like so romantic and so exciting. And there was, everybody wanted to, do, to be a part of that. And she was good looking. Did you want to be in the movies at that time in your life? 
Uh, no, much later. Much later. <laughs> but who doesn't want to be in the movies? Well, it is. It is. It is very one of the great few. Dreams. Jen and I would like. Yeah. To. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I'm good. No, I'm really, you're okay. Because I'm fine. I'll take it. <laughs> the you mentioned the anti-Semitism uh, back in Los Angeles at those in those days, which was not just in Los Angeles. But were you aware of the fact that you were performing at a theater that that didn't necessarily want you to be there? No, they were uh, welcoming to us. But their history... Their history had been anti-Semitic, so they were... No, it wasn't anti-Semitic, it's oh. just there were no Jews. Oh, there were no Jews. Oh, okay. So I get it. There's so a it difference. Wait, no, there is, no, it is. No, you're absolutely right. It's it so is. Funny. It's Thank not like they were actively keeping you out. They right. just, at, they hadn't opened their doors yet. And so were you, were you, was your father, was this the Borschkapades? Was this, so the Borschkapades was the first time they opened their doors? To, yes, to, to, to a show to a, like that. Right. Can I ask a question? When, do you, when did that start to change in Hollywood as far as more Jewish people being involved as producers, as directors? When did that start changing? I think, I think that the movie business was always uh, had a, a heavy Jewish uh, influence. Right, but there was just a lot of anti-Semitism. In the world. In the world. And still today. And, right, you know, of course. You, and here we are, and I'm doing Fiddler on the Roof in Yiddish in a time when the world in many, many ways feels like it's falling apart and anti-Semitism is on the rise and um, immigration is a disaster and uh, we have a president who is you know, just a, a crazy egomaniac. <laughs> put, to put it nicely. Yeah, I was trying to hold on. <laughs> you don't have to hold on. So, so let's talk a little bit about Fiddler because it is a stunning, stunning production and it, it really does resonate now, you guys have been. I've been. Yes. I haven't been I able to not. see it yet. I want well, like, to nobody can get a ticket. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's a good so problem to have. Congratulations on that. Yeah, you know Do somebody. We know, yeah. Now we know somebody. <laughs> so, can you talk a little bit about the significance of 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 directing this production of Fiddler in Yiddish with English and Russian subtitles, uh -huh. and what that experience has been like, and what it means to you? I don't know, uh, it, it's a highly unlikely success and nobody could have imagined it. But the things that's so interesting is that I think the fact that it's in Yiddish and everybody knows the story so well yeah. that they don't need to follow that particular, and they know the music so well. So they're involved and I, wanted to focus on the relationships and what those relationships were with fathers and daughters and sons and um, being hounded and kicked out and how that's really so much a part of our world today. But I think that the idea that it's in another language is making it totally understandable. It made me pay attention in a way 
that I wasn't prepared to. It, it drew me in in a laser-focused way because I didn't, it, it, I didn't understand the words. Of but as you said, I know what's happening. So I was able to enjoy the show on a level I never have before. It's truly a remarkable production. What was the rehearsal process like? Was it really, really well, difficult? First of all, we uh, had very little time, and we had uh, an open call for actors who would learn Yiddish <laughs> for the audition. <laughs> These poor people. Right. It was so hard. Yeah. And it really showed a kind of excitement and fervor for the project. Mm -hmm. If they took that time to work on a language that they had no idea, and that was not part of their background, and then they had to be, they, they worked with uh, a director only on the Yiddish, mm. separate from everything else. A then director they, that wasn't you, that, that, that was from the theater. The, right, that worked with the, with the, with with the, the language. With the folks being a, yeah. Were you worried that that attention to that time commitment of having to learn a foreign language would take away from the rehearsal process of what you needed to do? I had no choice. <laughs> you know, I had, a, I had an opening date. I had seen them perform and sing and dance. And uh, I think there were maybe 2,000 people wanted to audition. 2,000 people auditioned for In 26 <laughs> parts? Yeah. Wow, is that normal? It doesn't surprise me though no, because it doesn't it doesn't no. surprise me at all because I would think you know it's such a special event. I mean, it seems like such a special thing and to work with you, I mean, people would jump at the chance for well, that. Well, that's that's an interesting thing because I wish I'd known about it. Yeah, I didn't <laughs> I would have Our agent, did our agent Why call didn't us? They see Come me? on. Well, Yiddish The tour, Joel. Like 10 years ago to someone say this was happening then, I don't think it would have happened. Hmm. I think somehow now, yes. with these troubled times, mm -hmm. uh, people are curious. And I think people who come with backgrounds that they don't know a lot about, and with all this ancestry DNA, I mean, I think that there are a lot of Jews in a lot of the Gentiles that come to see this show and like themselves, like those characters, like the tenacity and the uh, heart that they show and how much they believe in their God or whatever. Right. You know, it's, it's about... It's about everybody. It really is. And I, uh, I think that there was a time when a lot of Jewish people I knew were really not wanting to talk about that. And uh, it's changed. The situation in Israel is so complicated. People don't know quite what to do with any of it. And the fact that our 
United States of America is under such siege and no real answer today about what's going to happen. And you keep thinking, how is this possible? This is so open and ugly and, and we're lost. We're lost, we're all affected by it. I left the theater with a feeling of hope, which is not how I normally leave really? a production of Fiddler. Yes, I normally I leave devastated. You're gutted at the end of the show. It's because you know what you know what you know what's going to happen. You know where you know where it goes, and yet with this production, I was left with a with a with a piece of hope, which I thought was really fascinating. I'm thrilled about that. Well, it, <laughs> well no, that's, thank you. Right, that's really uh, that's. That's hopeful. <laughs> well, since we're since we're moving in the direction of what comes next, um, this might be a good time to talk a little bit about a role that you are very identified with, and that would obviously be playing the MC in Cabaret. Yeah. What? <laughs> Did you do that? Come on. If I were a Nazi. <laughs> la, 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 la. No, I have so many questions. I do too. You made me no. do that. We have so many questions. Yeah. We just do. We do. We just do. All right. First off, you go. Where do you keep your Oscar and your Tony? Go. Well, come on over. Okay. <laughs> After I see your brilliant production of Fiddler on the Roof, it's a date. Yeah. It's huh? a date. I think a few of us recently rewatched the Tony performance. Yes, we did. Of, oh, uh, of, when I win the Tony? Uh, yes, I mean, um, yes, that and was. And we opened the show. Yes, you did. And right. that, that was, was the first, incredible. That was the first um, cross-country Tony Award. It was always in just New York. It was the first televised, televised. Yeah. broadcast. Right. And, and Wilkoman was the first musical number ever performed across the country wow. on the television, correct? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Well, you opened the show, did so you, you know? Yeah, I certainly incredible. did. Incredible. It was. As you did every night at the Broadhurst Theater. Yes. <laughs> yes. I'm interested. Oh. I, I was really struck by the fact, in going through your biography, um, that this role, the MC, was the first role that you originated in a musical on Broadway. Um, you had done a couple other shows before. You'd done a play, Come Blow Your Horn. And, and I had replaced people. You had replaced people, right. In musicals. But the first role that you created on right. Broadway, original, is right. this iconic performance that has really, you know, it's the name of your memoir, Master of Ceremonies. Um, I wonder if you could talk to us about what that was like. Take us back to 1966. You're handed this. Oh, nobody your... expected it to be a success. Right, right. I mean, it was unlikely uh, uh, a Broadway musical about uh, a gay man, and they they didn't call him gay, but right. we all knew it. And uh, 
a slut of a you know nightclub singer just all sleeping all over the place <laughs> and um, Nazis Nazis taking over and winning mm. at the end of the show right. did it feel subversive at the time like this was something that had never been done oh, no, before yeah, on totally yeah totally it was uh, it was it was not a good bet <laughs> and in yet. terms of uh, <laughs> the pre pre Broadway talk mm -hmm. and then opening night we um, we were in Boston at the not the Colonial you the were Schubert? at the Schubert. Schubert. Yeah. The Schubert. And um, the opening number came on, and we finished it, and we were ready to, and nobody could move. They insisted on applauding uh -huh. and applauding. And we all stood backstage and looked at each other. <laughs> what do we do? <laughs> what, what happens? Hey, stage manager, what, should we do the number again? You know what I mean? What the f is this? <laughs> and it finally, they yeah. died, it died down, but you knew then that we were doing something, something right. yeah. Yeah. No, I got powerful. Goosebumps. You just knew, mm. and it was magic. You could feel it in that moment. Mm. Ah, and yet, the MC, I, which I also had never realized, doesn't speak a line of dialogue. There's the no dialogue. Show. No. Mm. And yet he is so omnipresent, and you would, you would think, right? You know, he, he so brilliantly comments on what's going on on stage. Uh, when I read that in your memoir, that you got the script and you went through it and you kept looking for, where are my lines? Where are my lines? Right. No lines. That's how am I going to find out who I am? Right. He doesn't even have a name. No. Now, Joel, did you audition for it or was it like a straight up offer situation? No, I didn't audition. So it was an <laughs> it's offer. the first thing I ever did not so for the young for. people at home, that does not always happen. <laughs> but it did for it in this instance. Well, I had paid some dues. Right. Oh, you sure. know, I had I had been around for 10, 15 years, killing myself <laughs> and playing all these other parts that so how were did it other happen? people. Did, did you get a call? Like, what was that like when that happened? They just called you and they were like... Do you really want to know? Of course. Yeah. We're here. Read the book. <laughs> no, uh, it's in the book. I was ready to quit the business. I didn't have any work. I didn't see anything happening. And it was, you know, I had two young children. And it was time to quit. It just was too heartbreaking. And um, I had just done a dreadful play at Jones Beach that was just heartbreakingly amateurish and it was like almost you wanted to be people to just walk out it was a shame it was dreadful I've been in one of those sure. and um, so that closed and I paid the bills and I was ready to think of what else could I do and the telephone rang, and he said, uh, uh, Jolie? I, yeah. I said, oh, yeah. This was Hal Prince. Hal Prince. Right. <laughs> and that's what he, he's always called me. We were pals. I went to see Fiddler on the Roof in Washington as his buddy. Hmm. Um, anyway, he said, um, what's the matter? I said, you know, this and that, and I don't feel so great. And he said, 
Well, forget about it. I got a show I'm doing, and I think there's a good part in it for you. And I said, yeah? Oh, okay. He says, come see the, um, the run-through of the playing of the score. And, um, you know, I thought Hal Prince, pretty good. I wanted to work with him for a long time. And I went to the, to the reading, and everybody was there. It was very Hollywoody <laughs> movie, all about Evie, <laughs> sort of sensible yeah. sensibility. And um, they introduced Fred Ebb and John Kander, and John Kander started to play the piano. And Fred started to sing, and I thought to myself, that's going to be my song. And then I had to figure out how to play the part. <laughs> Which you had a little bit of trouble yeah, at first, was... right? It didn't come to you right away. Well, no, there's no lines. <laughs> <laughs> You're starting from nowhere, from scratch. Okay, you had to create this yeah. mythic character yeah. from nothing. That I've told nobody mm -hmm. about, mm -hmm. ever, Good. about the real MC. MC. Really, get the wine, get the wine, get him talking, <laughs> get him talking, get him talking. <laughs> I would say then you had the rare opportunity to perform it for the film. Yes. And well, what was that like? Because obviously, you know, film is so different. That was from just hard. Theater. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that was just hard because the director didn't want me in the movie. The director being Bob Fosse. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Who do you think he wanted to play that part? I think he wanted himself to play it. Do you think he would have been any good? Yeah. Would you he was have, a good performer. Would you have gone and seen right? that film? Would you have gone to the film cabaret if he had played that part? Probably. <laughs> he didn't play the part it, of himself in his own movie. I think right. he yeah. somehow saw himself in that role, but well, couldn't, had, couldn't admit it. Yeah. Yeah, that's hard. Well, he, he was tough to work with. You, you've said that before. Well, I mean, if he didn't want me in the... <laughs> well, you know, how what a welcoming set. How good know? could that yeah. be? But right. you did, you did eva I mean, look, you, you, you ended up making one of the greatest musicals, if not the greatest Amen. movie musical of yeah. all time. I just of saw it at the Quad Cinema uh, like four days ago. They, they did a whole Fosse retrospective. Um, it is... How it, was it? <laughs> it's a good film. When was the last time you saw it? long time. Wow. But it's very <laughs> different from the stage play in, in many, and, many... As well as it should have been. And, and yeah, and, and Fosse did a wonderful job. That's Fosse what he understood. Fosse a genius. Yeah. It's a great movie <laughs> from Fosse's standpoint. It, absolutely. It's outrageous. And Liza and Michael and all, all those, of you. Everybody, Marissa, everybody was at their best. But clearly you and Fosse figured out a way to work together. Clearly, there's a lot of magic that happens on that screen. So what, what, how did you guys get to that place? Was there, a, was there any particular Nothing, there turning point? There was no discussion. Point? No, just do it. Do it my way? Is that, is that how he operated? Sort of. <laughs> and or if I did it my way, it was okay. Did Fosse want the character of the MC to be different than the way you were portraying I don't know. it? 
We never talked about we it. We never talked about it. Wow. I don't know how you make that film and not talk <laughs> about these things. Well, because I'd already said who the MC was. Mm -hmm. Wow. So wow. you held your ground. You're, you did what you do, and if you had a problem with it, <laughs> then you had a problem with it. Well, I mean, I'd had the, the producer's backing and, uh, and a Tony. Now, did Liza kind of <laughs> have your back in all that? I mean, she must have seen what was going on. She must have yeah. felt that vibe. Yeah. And she had your back. Yeah. Because I'm sure he wasn't like that to her as much. No, he, was, he just adored her. Fond all over, yeah. Mm. Well, you two together on screen just cackled. I mean, it is sparkling. She's a great, great actor and um, just a totally lovable person. And so good. Didn't you love her performance I in mean, that? Oh my gosh. Unbelievable. It's one of the best female leading performances Breaks ever. Your heart. Yeah. I mean I try I strain to think of another performance that is as total and iconic and essential to the success of the film. I mean it's yeah. incredible. There isn't a false note anywhere in that film on no, anything. Every, he did a great job. Every and single I thing. I have to say, you know, growing up, we had a VHS tape of Cabaret <laughs> in our house. And I, I was a kid, probably five, six, seven years old. <laughs> and I would take it out, and I knew where all the musical numbers were. I would fast forward to the musical numbers, because everything else went over my head. But there was something about, I mean, it's, you know, the obvious magic of those musical numbers, starting from Vilkeman at the beginning to Two Ladies and um, the Money Song was my favorite. I mean, I was obsessed with that. I, I, used, I tried to recreate it on the playground at school, and it was kind of scolded for it being a little uh, off color. I went to a Catholic school, so you can imagine. And the gorilla. Of, the gorilla. The gorilla, of course. And there was this oh, tremendous gosh. conversation with the producers and the movie company as to whether or not to use the real line at the end right. that was changed for Broadway. If you could see her through my eyes, she isn't a miskite at all, which is what they ended up with on Broadway. And in the movie, if you could see her through my eyes, she wouldn't look Jewish at all. Did you feel a sense of betrayal when that was changed before Broadway? Because uh, it was, was in Out of Town, right? <laughs> Excuse me. Bless you. <laughs> um, Bless you. Just the idea of that. <laughs> right? <laughs> Set you off. Um, I was... I was very, very vocal about holding on to that. That I thought the whole show really w went to that moment right. that was so horrible. I understand your objection. I grant you the problem's not small. But if you could see her through my She isn't a misguide at all. But he couldn't do it. It was 1966, and audiences just weren't ready for that. But I would forget <laughs> very often right. on stage. Oh, oh, God, I'm sorry. The stage manager. God damn it, will you? Ouch. You know what I mean? 
I saw the movie recently, and I just, I've forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. What do you think happens to the MC? <laughs> I love that question. Nobody knows. I know my little cousin Eric is his credit is hysterical, and also cousin Emma and upon his mother's Emma, and my sister and my brother took the hockey one another too. But I'm not an income poop, I've got an income you put in the bank to accrue. Yes, me, I'm sitting pretty. Life is pretty sitting with, pretty sitting with, pretty sitting with you. I want to jump forward a little bit, um, unless anybody else has any other cabaret questions. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the normal heart. Um, which is a, obviously, very important uh, play uh, to the world and to all of us. Um, it's a play that you have a special relationship with because you played the part of Ned Weeks, and then you went on to direct a very successful production of it many years later. Um, so how does working on a show in both of those capacities shift your experience of the show? Well, I went on uh, in a rush in the first place because Brad Davis, who created the role, it was like a, a week after and found out he was dying of AIDS. And Joe Papp called and said, how quickly can you go into the show? Mm -hmm. right. And it was fraught. Well, the show itself was fraught. Everybody was sick. Nobody was talking about it. Everybody was terrified. Mm. And um, doing that show and hearing the audience weeping and coughing and gasping and looking at the names on the walls of all the people who had already died. And people came in and didn't know that some of their friends were gone until they saw it up on the set. And um, it, was a, it was one of the great experiences of my life. And it's a, a beautiful, killer, heartbreaking play. And um, it breaks everybody's heart to see it and do it. But when we did the, the uh, reading, was it five, six, seven years ago? Something like that. In Los Angeles. Here. Oh, here in New York. Yeah. At the Walter Kerr. You were there. I was. <laughs> and um, everybody came, and they were more ready to listen. They were not in that terrible moment of, oh, my God, what's happening to our lives? We can look back at it. And, they, and then all of a sudden, people came to it, and it became a big hit. Time has a way of doing that. It was a phenomenal production. And it, I mean, everybody who saw it was. I had a hard time getting up out of my seat. That's exactly oh, how yeah. I felt. When That's it was exactly over, I, I, I resented the ushers saying, OK, you got to go, because I was so struck by the power of Larry Kramer's words and Joe Mantello's performance and I mean the whole I know. ensemble Beautifully done. Was such an incredible piece and I was blown away you know it was my first time seeing it the revival 2011 um, and I 
That's because you're such a boy. Oh, please. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, but I, I immediately, you know, looked it up, and and to put together that it was first performed in 1985, as you describe, at you know the early years of this crisis, I I cannot fathom what it must have been like for you as as a performer to do that play at the public theater every night, because nearly 30 years later, it was just as devastating for me. And we do have that, you know, that time, that, that distance from um, the horror of those early days. Um, and I was, I was just absolutely blown away by it. I mean, it, it was, and I, I can imagine for you too, you know, having performed it and now directing it must have been a real, I, I think about Fiddler with your childhood with, you know, a grandmother who came from Russia and Yiddish and your father performing in the Jewish theater. And then here you are at the age of 86, directing Fiddler on the Roof in Yiddish. To me, The Normal Heart is another one of those bookending experiences mm -hmm. for you that you, know, you couldn't have planned a, a, a more synchronistic, <laughs> beautiful way to have you know, lived your career. And of course, that's the way it always happens, right? You can never plan a career, uh, certainly one like yours. Um, but do you, I mean, I, it is pretty weird, right? <laughs> it's another way to put it, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, do you ever unconventional? Sure. sure absolutely. <laughs> um, you know, when you not by plan, by the way, right? Well, that's, you couldn't, that's just yeah. living. You couldn't. Life is what happens when you're busy making other plans. Right. Right? I love that. Totally. Phrase. Yeah. <laughs> John right, Lennon right. said that. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. 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 I, I want to wrap up sort of shortly. Um, but I do have a couple of just sort of housekeeping-y questions, just things I'm curious about that I've never asked you. Really? Yes. Um, and you think this is the time. I think this is the time. I do. Um, who? I always knew you were cheeky. I, well, that's, that goes without saying. Um, who did you want to work with or do you want to work with that you haven't worked with? Other than me. Oh, that's good. <laughs> yeah. You know, there are a lot of movie directors and um, I'm not interested particularly in performing anymore. It just doesn't hold uh, a magic for me. And um, I think I did it. I mean, I could always be wrong and somebody would offer me something to do that would be short, like three or four months. But even three or four months turns into a year before you do it and after you do it. Um, and a, a movie is another thing, you know, to work with the, I worked with uh, Lars von Trier. I saw Breaking the Waves and I said, oh my God, I wanna be in that kind of a movie, work with a director like that. And the next thing I knew, he was making the movie with Bjork. Dancer in the Dark. And um, I, there was no money, and there was not even a part. She called one day. John Gray? Yes. Is she Bjork? Yes, we're making a movie, and we would like very much for you to be in it. Thank you, goodbye. That was Bjork. <laughs> and I loved her, and we made a very interesting film. I think it's unheralded. I would agree with that. Yeah, I agree. I would, I would absolutely agree with that. And that 
working, that shoot was not particularly, it was a little out of your comfort zone, the way that Lars and Bjork worked. Is that correct? Um, no. It was just different than anything I'd ever done because that's how he works. You shot abroad, right? You shot in Amsterdam? Was yeah. it Amsterdam or Holland? Copenhagen. Copenhagen, yeah. And was it a few days? Was it a month? Was it? No, it was about three weeks, I think. It was about three weeks. And you recorded a song in a shower, is that correct? <laughs> well, um, we had a duet. And uh, I was waiting for a couple of weeks in a hotel while they finished whatever they were doing. It, you know, it was very unusual. And um, I got a call and said, we're recording the duet today in um, room 410. And I said, fine, okay. And I came down there. I barely knew Bjork. And uh, we're both standing in the shower. And the guy's holding the microphone. And, and I thought, okay, we're doing a, a layout. That was it. Fine. That was what <laughs> was on the big screen. Literally singing in the shower. Uh -huh. which, which, uh -huh. which you could actually say you were paid to sing in the shower. I could. More or less. Good. Okay. Not much. <laughs> this, this, and we're, we're wrapping things up here, but this, this comes from my husband, and he asks, tell us the Judy Garland story. Oh. oh, well, I don't know. There are a few. He said you were going to say that. <laughs> he did? He did. He said the palace. Oh, the palace, right. <laughs> I was in Cabaret, and it was a big success, and I was, my throat was always tired because I did not sing well, you know, correctly. And it was Sunday, and we went to the palace to see Judy Garland, and she was having throat trouble. And um, so she was getting anybody who was in the audience to come up and take some of the, you know, do a number or sing something. Actually, she would make them do that. And um, she introduced me, and the audience acknowledged me. And uh, she said, wouldn't you like to do a number? And my throat was crappy. And I said, I don't think so. Thank you very much. And I stood up and I acknowledged the crowd. And I was sitting with my wife. And I said, oh, God help us. Next thing I know, she says to the audience, don't you want to see him do a number? <laughs> and I was swept. She wasn't going to let you get away. No. I was swept up onto the stage, and there I was, and the music started, and she said, uh, sing Cabaret, someone in the audience. And I said, I don't know that song. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, that's not my song. That wasn't your song. Um, and Elliot Lawrence, I think, was in the pit, and he started it, and it was in a very high key. <laughs> A good city. Uh, and within like two bars, he modulated. And I'm standing there, and I'm singing a song that I don't know. And I have Judy Garland on my arm. And we're, the lights are down, and the spot's on us. And we're dancing, and I'm thinking, 
It's just unbelievable. Oh, doesn't get any better than that. Did and she know the words? Pardon? Did she know the words? No. <laughs> but the thing is, I've always thought that somebody must have been there and photographed it, or, mm. and I would just pray for them to show up. Oh. If you're out there. Yes, right. if you're out there. Please send that photo to us. Well, you painted a beautiful picture for all our wow. listeners. What oh, a great I story. I know. Amazing story. Um, okay, I have one more question, and, and, it, and, and it's a simple one. But if, if you were to think about your legacy and you were to think about, you know, what that looks like, how do you want people to remember you? Uh, an actor and a man. I'll be the same. Good night. Okay, it's Rob here with a segment that we're calling You May Be Wondering. So, you may be wondering why we decided to call this podcast The Fabulous Invalid. Well, the phrase is one long associated with Broadway as a description for the Great White Way itself, perpetually deemed in decline and yet always seeming to bounce back. Indeed, since the dawn of the commercial live theater in New York, it's always been seen as an industry that's imperiled on the brink of oblivion due to shifting cultural preferences, financial pressures, and technological advances. And yet, through depression and war, and the advent of moving pictures, radio, television, it has endured, thanks to endless reinvention, creativity, imagination, and sometimes just sheer will and a heavy dose of luck. Broadway's financial position and cultural influence have certainly wavered over the years. Today, it is undoubtedly a booming industry, a billion-dollar industry, that is at the very heartbeat of New York City and American culture writ large, while still maintaining its own niche allure. We see record-breaking grosses in attendance, hit shows running for decades with tourists flocking, but it wasn't always like this. Just a few decades ago, Broadway was seen as hopelessly, maybe even permanently, in financial crisis. Theaters were empty for years, tourists stayed far away from Times Square. So this fluctuation is really nothing new. In the late 1920s, as vaudeville faded from the boards and talkies became the fashion, the fabulous invalid was put on life support. The rise of radio in the 30s and 40s and the explosion of television in the 50s kept it there. Every season was considered a mini triumph in the face of certain death. And yet, at the same time, the Rodgers and Hammerstein revolution changed the trajectory of musical theater. And new playwrights like Eugene O'Neill, Tennessee Williams, Arthur Miller, they all burst onto the scene. Looking back, the 1960s are kind of now considered a golden age, even though by the early 70s, it was kind of the nadir of the industry. I mean, how many times over the years have you heard someone say, the American musical is dead? And then something comes around, like Hair, or A Chorus Line, or Rent, or Hamilton. The truth is, the theater is ephemeral. It happens in a place, at a moment, and then it's done, left only in memory and tradition. It's fleeting. It requires people to show up and it requires a constant new energy and, and new content. So it's easy to understand why people might think that we're always just kind of one season away from disappearing altogether. The Fabulous Invalid is also a 1938 Valentine of a play by Moss Hart and George S. Kaufman, leading dramatists of the time. In it, 
a theater husband and wife die on the opening night of the fictional Alexandria Theater, which is really just a substitute for the storied New Amsterdam. And then they linger on as ghosts, as shows come and go, and the form changes from roughly 1903 to 1938. While that play ran a mere 65 performances at the Broadhurst Theater, it also cemented the fabulous invalid in the lexicon of theater lovers as a doting way to describe a uniquely American cultural institution that is so dear to our hearts. And now, as the name of this podcast, we hope to contribute in some small way to the project of keeping the theater alive and enduring. Jennifer here. That's our show. Thanks for listening. The Fabulous Invalid is a production of O&M and the Fabulous Invalid LLC. Our theme music is by Lucky Chops. Today's episode was edited and engineered by Aaron Kaufman and Charles Van Kirk. Find us on social media at The Fabulous Invalid. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday. Tears and fears and feeling proud To say I love you right out loud Dreams and schemes and circus crowds I've looked at life that way But now old friends are acting strange They shake their heads, they say I've changed But something's lost, but something's gained In living every day I've looked at life from both sides now From win and lose and still somehow It's life's illusion I really don't know life at all. Hey, it's Leslie Udom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.